Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, It's good to see you. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And last week we began a new series addressing the big why behind the church. Because if you're going to donate $3 million like me... um, (laughs) (laughs) That was a shocker. That was good. Uh, You had my attention. Um, No, but in all honesty, because we live in a world where we have so many competing priorities, don't we? And and so in those competing priorities, there is this looming question, why church? Even as I'm dedicating my son this morning and I'm thinking about investing time and is this the place, the best place to raise kids? Why church? In a world where where more and more people are not just jaded by religion broadly, but the church specifically. Why church? And if you look across the landscape and and throughout history, every great organization, every movement, it had its genesis because of a big why, a compelling reason. And the greatest of organizations, those that bring about sustaining change, are those who return to this big why, that compelling reason, year after year after year, so that we never forget. So here, why church? Why do we do this week in and week out? Why do we organize our calendars and wrestle with our calendars and try to get our calendars to submit so that we can engage local partners throughout the week or be a part of a community group throughout the week? In other words, why is church worth it, right? This is a big, looming question with so many other options available to us in this world. Well, here's the reason. The reason is because there's hope here. There's hope here, unlike anywhere else in the rest of the world. I mean, so much of our life, right, it breeds despair. You see news story after news story after news story of heartache, and then life hits. But at the center of the local church, as God designed it, isn't naive optimism, it's not cynicism, it's not bitterness. Instead, what we find is hope. There's hope here. 
And last week, we saw that this powerful hope that's anchored in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus within history actually engages each of our stories personally. And we saw that that really should transform the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, and even the mission he's called us to. And today, we're going to see that this hope, this hope, it's not just a hope for you and me, but actually, by extension, this is a hope for us together, together. You know, it it seems like... um, Everywhere we turn, you see relationships crumble, community falling apart. I mean, look at the political narrative we find ourselves in. Is it guiding us to greater unity? No, it's intensifying, intensifying polarization, isn't it? You look in our communities and you see rising racial tensions. You look at family structures across the nation and you see this continual growth of divorce and broken homes. Then you just even look at friendships. We have such a transient culture, don't we? And you get geographical distance and then friendships fizzle. And so we start to ask ourselves, well, how is community even possible? Because every single one of us, even in the light of all of this fragmentation, we all have this longing to belong somewhere. Not to just live with purpose, but to to belong somewhere on purpose, to be a part of a family, to be a part of a community. And because of so much fragmentation, we see this world over. It can seem like that kind of us. It feels impossible. It seems like a pipe dream, doesn't it? And this is the part of God's genius and his design of the church. This is where we cue the local church because this is where hope is, even even for community. The local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world because, because only here anyone can be family. Anyone. Not just be welcomed when you come into the door, not just be present at different events, but actually belong with purpose. You know, uh, last Sunday night, uh, we had our congregational meeting where people from all five campuses came together, and we're talking about this new initiative, Reach KC, that you, you heard about again this morning. And Charlie Flayhive, um, who's been a member of Christ Community for a while now, faithful member. If you know Charlie, you know he's unforgettable. And <clears throat> he said something. He said something that was just, it was so, so beautiful. We were all gathered together and it was after the meeting and I came up to him and he said, you know, on paper, we shouldn't know each other. You've got doctors, lawyers, businessmen, and me. And yet here we are. This is the church. There's hope here because only here anyone can be family. Anyone. And I know we got to kind of hit the pause button and then also go in reverse a little bit because the reality is, is not every church is like that. Chances are really good what you've experienced with the church hasn't spoken to that. And, and maybe even this morning, you're sitting here and you don't even know if your experience with this church reflects that. Because the church can so easily drift into feeling like a club. It can so easily start to feel like a union where you pay your dues, you show up, you get your perks, and then you're out. And you'd be right, because sometimes it can feel like that for various reasons, which is why this morning we're going to learn from a first century church who is wrestling with this hope, a hope that actually is for us together, not just for you and me personally, but a hope for us together, a hope that even makes an us possible. Because if we're going to grow in being this kind of place, a place where anyone can be family, I mean anyone, if we're going to be true to God's intention for the local church, then we need to hear what the Apostle Paul has to tell us this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. 
So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps um, to Ephesians chapter 2. I had somebody tell me, it was a couple weeks ago, hey, if I'm looking on my phone, I'm not texting. I'm actually looking at scripture. And I'm like, I know, I know. Or at least I tell myself that. It makes me feel better. <laughs> so just so you know, that's what I think when you do that. Um, but let me give you some background um, to this first century church in Ephesus while you're turning there. You see, in the first century, there were two groups of people who were like oil and water. They lived in different parts of the town. They had different restaurants. They had different ethnic foods. They saw the world different. They they saw their communities differently. They even looked different. And even though they lived close to each other for centuries, for centuries, throughout their shared history were stories of pain and violence. I could tell you story after story of murder and retaliation. Murder and retaliation. Some of these stories would turn your stomach. Who are these two groups? The Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, this this, this, this division, it wasn't just ethnic. It was national. It wasn't just religious. It was racial. And this division, it was so ingrained in the fabric that it actually took shape in brick and mortar, in the institutions and systems of a city, as divisions often do and we still see taking shape in our city today. You know, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem built by Herod the Great, it was monstrous. It was bigger than any other temple um, that had been built in the history of Israel. And it was made up of a series of courts separated by gated walls. Um, Here's a reconstructed model of that temple as it was in the first century. You know, as you entered the temple court through those, the the big gate around each court moved progressively closer to what was called the Holy of Holies where the place where heaven and earth touched, where God told Israel that his unique presence was to be felt, and through Israel he would bring blessing to the world. And this first court that you see on the outer side here is the gate of the Gentiles. So this broader court is where the Gentiles could hang out, and then there's this little wall that would stop any Gentile in their tracks. They couldn't go up the stairs to go any closer. If you were a God-fearing Gentile, This is as far as you could go. This is as close to God as it gets for you. Then if you were a Jewish woman, you could enter the next court. But the innermost court, before you actually entered the holy place and the holy of holies, was only available to Jewish men. And listen, this is serious because if you were caught in the wrong court, it could cost you your life. Archaeologists actually discovered an inscription on the wall in the outermost part. So this is the court of the Gentiles. And it read, whoever's captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. <laughs> now, I'm not 100% sure, but I think this is what we describe when we, as hostility between ethnicities, okay? You have your court over here, I've got my court over there, and if you cross the line, you might lose your life. And if history was a predictor of the future, then the... Then the divide, the violence of the past between these two ethnicities would continue to dominate the present. There would always be walls between them. Always. But then something happened, didn't it? And look at what uh, the Apostle Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. After centuries of division, isolation, murder, and retaliation, we read in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus... Now at this point in history, all of history will be altered because Jesus has come at this moment in the first century, don't miss this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, who once were far off, speaking of the Gentiles, because they couldn't come near, remember, have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, what? One, speaking of Jew and Gentile. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see that? Before Jesus, it was through the law and the temple. That was the locus of God's work through Israel that had been entrusted to the Jewish people. But now that Jesus has come and died, it has been fulfilled in Christ. And I could tell you, listen, how the law and the ordinances were meant to be a blessing to the Gentile people. I could tell you how Israel's place of privilege wasn't meant to be a place of isolation and arrogance, but a place of greater service and carrying out the mission all the way back in Abraham, with Abraham in Genesis 17. There's still the question of how does God relate with Israel? And listen, that's a whole other sermon for another day. We're not going to touch that. <laughs> not today. But listen, the point that Paul's making here between this, in this Jewish and Gentile community that's trying to figure out how do they do this together is that Jesus became that holy of holies. And then he actually became the ultimate sacrifice, tearing down that old wall. And through him, we have the access to the one true God. It's through him and him alone. The result, no more walls. No more walls. And Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, he makes a way of reconciliation between two hostile ethnicities who share centuries of hostility toward each other, preaching peace now to both parties, and he creates a whole new family made up of Jew and Gentile. And listen, if he could do this in the first century, this gives me hope for the church he's continuing to cultivate today. But yeah, Gabe, I can hear some of you asking, but why does that seem so out of reach for today? It doesn't look like we're tearing down walls. It looks like more often than not, we're building more and more walls, doesn't it? We put up our own signs to the other that read, Whoever's caught past this point will have himself to blame for his death. I mean, why were there in the history of the church in the United States burning crosses and segregation and lynchings? Why is Sunday still the most segregated day of the week? Why is racism still so pervasive in the church? Why do so many people feel excluded and so many people simultaneously self-select out? And I think... So far, we've anchored on what Jesus has done that we've forgotten a really crucial component in all of this when we talk about why the church. An absolutely crucial component if we're ever to be the kind of church that God intends. In order for the church to become a place where anyone can belong, where reconciliation happens, where anyone can be family, listen here, we must do one thing. We must embrace the pain. We must embrace the pain. What do, you, what, do I, what do I mean? Okay. You know, growing up in a broken home, I used to think that families, if they had both parents, they had it easy. <laughs> I was like, they figured it out. Like, they figured out how to avoid pain. They figured out how to navigate and, like, keep their distance from pain. They must have it so easy. And looking back, I couldn't have been more wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. Because family's never easy. Never. Even if you've got every advantage available to you, family is never easy. 
Instead, a family is where everyone stays together, and a family isn't... It's not where everybody's learned to avoid pain. It's where everybody's learned to embrace it. Not push it to the side, not brush it under the rug, but actually wrestle with it. And that's the same with the church, this new family. I mean, with so much else going on in our lives, we can come to the church and then we start asking questions like, I don't feel connected here of all places. Or you get frustrated that the church isn't doing this or embodying that. And, and right when we realize that the church is this real messy place, and it's a messy family, and we have to do hard things together, that's when we eject. Because it's so much easier to just do it on our own. (laughs) It's so much easier. It's not better, but it's easier. And we love comfort. We love what's easy. But listen, families, they don't complain from the outside. That's not a family. Pointing out all the flaws from afar, instead, a family, it embraces the pain and it wrestles with it within. It has those hard conversations. It sacrifices. And and, and so we got to ask this question, okay, how do we embrace the pain? Here's how. Being a family means we first embrace the pain of remembering. The pain of remembering. I mean, so often, we just want to move past the pain of the past, right? Because it's painful to remember pain in the past. It's painful to remember failures. I mean, can't we just move on, right? And the apostle Paul says, no. (laughs) Twice over in our passage, what does Paul say? In verse 11, therefore, remember. Verse 12, remember. You got to remember who you were, what you've come through, where you've been. Don't whitewash the past. Remember the walls that were built. We've kept our distance. Remember. We forced others to keep their distance or else, remember. If there's any hope for us, we have to embrace the pain of remembering. And once you do that, once you get that Paul is really emphasizing this importance of remembering as a community, then you can start to understand where he goes next. Because he says first, yes, embrace the pain of remembering, but then he calls us to embrace the pain of the cross. Why? Because nothing you or I can do can ever fully remove the pain from the walls we've built in the past. You can't pay for that. You can't fix it. It has to be someone bigger than you. It has to be. Someone else had to take all of that hostility, put it in himself, and die for it. Brene Brown, she's a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work and is the author of um, three number one New York Times bestsellers. So she's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, just a little bit. And in one interview, she tells about how she went back to the church when she was in so much pain. Why church for her? Because she came back to the church with the same assumption that so many people come back to the church, hoping that the church is going to take away her pain. And after... In so many words, she she basically says she missed the big why of the church. She was expecting to come back to the church and it would be like an epidural. And it would take the pain, it would numb the pain that she was experiencing in her life. But in reality, she said when she got to understand what the church is and the way the church is designed, it's called to be a midwife, not an epidural. Where it actually walks with you through the pain. Doesn't brush it under the rug. The church is a community called to embrace the pain, not numb it. 
Because it's the only pathway to hope. Embracing pain is the only pathway to hope. Forgiveness, reconciliation, community, those are really hard things. And if they're not hard for you, it's probably because you're not actually a part of one. If you've never actually experienced it, it is really hard. If you want something easy, then don't choose the church. You know, she, Brene Brown, she was talking with her pastor, and he says there has to be blood on the floor to be a part of the church. There has to be blood on the floor. You have to embrace the pain of the cross and the fact that God became flesh to die, not just for you, but for us together. And after you, listen, after you've embraced the pain of remembering, don't stop there, you'll become bitter. You have to move on to this next step of embracing the pain of the cross because that's the only place forgiveness is possible. But then you can't stop there because it doesn't make the community necessarily any better. <laughs> There's one more step. You have to embrace the pain of coming together, making sacrifices to be present with people. Even when you see the mess, you have to fight for it. You have to come back to it again and again and again. And listen, if they are worthy of Jesus' blood, whoever they is to you, then they're worthy of your blood. You understand this? Your sacrifice, your pain to commit to them, even when they hurt, even when you've hurt them, you're worth their blood. And this morning, I want to introduce you ever so quickly to Wesley and Carissa Forte. They attend our Brookside campus. And we've been kind of getting these vignettes from our different campuses as we've been remembering the big why of the church. And this morning, they, they reminded me, and I hope they remind us, of the hope that can come when we embrace each other. Let's watch together. What led to us coming to Christ community? So we were looking for a church that was well-rounded, something that fit the entire family. After one service, our daughter came running upstairs and said, we have to join this church. This is the church that we need to join. Let me tell you what I learned today. I just remember it like I just walked through the doors that day we visited. And he just said, what's your name? Let's go to lunch. <laughs> what stuck with Wesley was the fact that he was able to build relationships with men that didn't look like him. Yeah, we went to this Italian restaurant and he just opened up about race and about where we was as a church, what the church has been praying for and just praying for more diversity and seeing how our families is an answer from God, just coming to that church. And just for the fact that we just had a very comfortable conversation about race just from the start, that was the start of our relationships, just this being tremendously great. I have built some really great relationships with some really awesome women. And the cool thing is, it's not just even at the Brookside campus. I have friends that go to the Leewood campus and the Olathe campus and the downtown campus. And they're all different races, Chinese, black, white, Samoan. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're all friends and we are all working together to encourage one another and just to help each other learn how to operate in these things as daughters of the king. So my relationship went from visiting to these are my brothers that I'll share personal things with, and I love them to death. One thing that I really admire in terms of 
unity at, in the church and being that starting place is that Pastor Bill Gorman is not afraid to address it. He stands up there in front of a predominantly white congreg congregation and fearlessly gives biblical truth. I respect him a lot for that because a lot of churches, whether it's black or white, aren't touching it. And he does it in a way that resonates with people, with the injustices that have happened. I had more women come up to me and just cry and say, Carissa, I am so ignorant to these things. I truly just don't know because I don't have to live in that experience and I'm sorry for that. And I never feel like you have to apologize to a person of color just because you're white, you know? But I think that it's awesome that it's resonating with people and it's making, it's making them ask questions and want the veil to be lifted. So not long ago, me and um, a couple of the brothers from church, John and Anthony, with another couple, we went to Legacy in Chicago, which is a hip hop conference, but it's also just a discipleship conference. And just going to that conference and us being able to, to bond together, get to know each other, and just us showing that authentic love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We sat, we, we prayed, we talked about, about race issues. And from that trip, just coming back from Legacy, that's been a life-changing experience. And that picture is like the, it's like the perfect picture to show what unity looks like in the church. Black and white brothers and sisters just hugged up, linked up, and showing everybody that we love each other authentically. What I love about Wesley and Chris's story is that it just reminds us that there's hope here. It reminds us that there's hope here. Because where walls once stood now stands a cross. Where walls once stood now stands a cross. And if we embrace the pain of the cross, then we must embrace one another. Where anyone can be family, anyone. And you know what, you know what God will do? You know what he's building? We see this actually in the remainder of our passage this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, look with me here at verse 19. So then, because of all of this, so then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You used to be separated, now you're together but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see that? The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is three and yet one God, where does he dwell? Not behind locked doors, not behind tall walls, but among his people gathered in a unique way when his people are actually in diverse and unity, when they're in diversity and unity, a people that actually reflects the diversity and unity of our God. Not that you're ever, you know, uh, coming colorblind to a community, you celebrate the ethnicities, the nationalities, and the races that are make up now this people of God. But the primary identity we all hold, not white culture, not black culture, not Asian culture, instead we come now as one new humanity, scripture says, in Christ. Still celebrating distinctiveness, but our primary identity is in Christ and a whole new family, 
a whole new family. You know, as I was wrestling through this passage this week, I couldn't help but think of um, something I saw when I was in Berlin. And uh, we were visiting our global church partner, Project Kirke, which is a church plant in East Berlin, seeking to be a spiritual catalyst um, for the good of that city. And <clears throat> I saw something that as, as we were walking along the, um, where the, the Berlin Wall once stood, you know, you had a world between East and West that was divided. You had capitalism and communism smacking each other right there. And what stood in the gap was a wall. But then we came to the most ama- this most amazing building. It was a church. In 1961, as the Berlin Wall was just beginning to take shape, separating East and West Berlin, you know, the Cold War was well underway. And, and this church, it found itself in the dead zone, what it was called, the no man's land. And this, 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 this just captured my imagination. To the east was a wall, and to the west was a wall, such that in the middle was this church, and no one had access to it anymore but the guards. And yet the church would still, it was separated now, but they would still come to the wall on opposite sides, and they would have these prayer gatherings. People from the east and people from the west. And this church it became an institutional mockery to the divisions that were separating the world. For here between these two ideologies right, stood the church, a reminder of people who stood in the gap. The institution of the local church mocked the divisions of the world. And it did so at least until 1985, where the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, had had enough, and so they had the church blown up. They were getting tired of the message that it was communicating. And the goal behind that was actually to discourage other Protestant churches who were against the regime and providing a space for freedom of speech. But their plan failed. It totally backfired because, yeah, the church was demolished, but the spirit of the church, they were emblazoned, and the legacy of this church was, it was locked down in the annals of history for all time. You see, when you embrace the pain, not even death, not even destruction can keep us from the hope for us. What's so fascinating is that in 1995, on what was called the Day of Repentance uh, for Germany, when everything about the church had been totally destroyed, this reconciliation church, the cross that sat atop the steeple, it resurfaced. <laughs> because there was a group of folks who were working the cemetery, and when the church had exploded, they grabbed the cross and they hid it. And they held on to it. And then it resurfaced in 1995, battered and bent, and there it was. What was supposed to be defeated and eradicated At the end of the day, this very cross that calls us to reconciliation was the victor in the end. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And you know what's in place of that old church that was demolished? Another church (laughs) that stands there still today, right there where the wall was. A church that beckons to each and every church, is a symbol to each and every church of our call. Not to be building more walls, but to be a place of reconciliation to be a place where God is doing his work of tearing down those walls of hostility and creating now a whole new humanity in Christ. Because listen, no walls stand a chance when they're fighting against the cross and the people who've embraced the cross. I mean, think here of Kansas City. There's this huge historical brokenness of racism and we've got the truce divide that's breaking up our city. That line, that wall has no hope against the cross. We could look at state line, 
that's continued to divide, whether it be economic policies and so on. Same true with truths. And that has no hope of standing when the cross is placed at the center. Look at the poverty line. All of these walls that the world, erect, the world erects and our culture supports, they have no hope. And the church, the institutional church, the place where people gather together, where, where everywhere else the world is being fragmented and relationships and people are wrestling with hyper-individualism, together we can have a community that proclaims the plausibility of the gospel, that it isn't just about you and Jesus or your family and Jesus, but about a church, a family of families across races, nationalities, ethnicities that come together because Christ is that beautiful and the church is that beautiful. If... And only if we embrace the pain. You have a part to play. When you look at the priorities, it is important that you're here week in and week out because you're proclaiming a message to the world that this community exists and actually is possible. If we step into the death zone, if we live our lives in no man's land, if we embrace the pain of remembering, embrace the pain of the cross, and embrace coming together again and again and again, then we'll watch what he'll make of us, yeah? The promise that we see here in Ephesians chapter 2. A community, in the words of Charlie, that doesn't make sense on paper, and yet points to the best story ever told. I think there's hope for us yet. The local church as God designed it is the hope of the world because only here anyone can be family because of the gospel if we embrace the pain. So I want to ask us this morning when we're remembering and we're seeking to be thoughtful and intentional and living into God's design for the local church, will you embrace the pain? Let's pray. In one sense, God, I know that no matter what's said, a stump speech for the church can sound triumphalistic. And in one sense, it should. Because you have triumphed over the hostility of this world. You have triumphed over the old divisions and the pain and the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet, in another sense, we still wrestle through so much brokenness. So God, I, I make a special prayer specifically for Christ community in this downtown campus, God, that we would be the kinds of people who have the courage to embrace the pain. That we don't pursue comfort or what's easy, or if something gets hard, then we eject. But, but instead, God, we embrace the pain. Just like you sent your son to embrace the pain for us. The pain of our sin and our great debt. Oh God, we need you. We need each other, and it's because of the gospel we have a hope for us, the local church. By your spirit, move us, mold us and make us, and we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.